Well, this morning we're going to be continuing once again in the Gospel according to Luke, Luke chapter 15, uh, verses 11 to 32. Uh, but for the context, I'm going to actually um, read the, the whole passage. You know, I think you probably have the, the second half up there, um, but I'll read the whole. Uh, if you would like, you can grab a, a, a Bible as well from the, the uh, pew rack in front of you. Uh, but Luke chapter 15, I think I'll be preaching from 11 to 32, but I'm going to focus here. Uh, I'm going to read the whole chapter. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman? Having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there was joy before angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. He divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long ways off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quickly, bring the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and killed it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. They began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. As he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come. Your father has killed the fatted calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, 
I have never disobeyed your, your command, yet you never even gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. They said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of our Lord. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for the building of the church. Please be seated. Let's pray again together. Almighty God, we praise you for this precious passage of Scripture. Lord, this passage is so familiar to so many, even so many in the world. Yet so few begin to think about what it really means. So few begin to consider what it really says about who you are, about your love and your grace and your mercy and about over your your amazing efforts, your amazing grace to save sinners. And so few begin to actually apply it to themselves and to consider who they are in this story. Whether they are the younger son, who yes, sinned grievously, but repented. Or whether they are the elder brother who still needs to repent, even though he is outwardly righteous. Lord, we pray again that your Holy Spirit would empower these, these words as I proclaim your word today. May it be truly your word in our hearts. And may we, all of us, respond with faith and repentance in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who came to seek and to save that which was lost. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. As we began our study in Luke chapter 15, we saw that tax collectors and sinners drew near to Jesus to listen to him. But we saw in verse 2 that the scribes and the Pharisees grumbled over the fact that Jesus receives sinners and eats with him. But it's actually these sinners, these tax collectors, not the scribes and Pharisees, who are the ones who had ears to hear at the end of, of chapter 14. Where Jesus speaks about, about, about how salt is good, but if it's lost its taste, how can it be restored? He says that, that it's worthless. It's, it's just worth being cast away. He gave this charge. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What we see here in this passage is, as Jesus continues in Luke 15, to see that, that it's the sinners, it's the tax collectors who have ears to hear, not those who claimed to know and to teach the word of God, because they had added to the word of God with the rules of men. And they sought to establish a righteousness of their own that came through their obedience, not through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So these scribes and Pharisees did not have ears to hear. So Jesus responded with three parables. We looked earlier at the first two, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. 
The shepherd goes out searching for his sheep. And the woman searches and, and, and lights a, a lamp to search her house. This, the, the one, the, the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes after the one. And the woman does not concern herself with the, the nine coins, but looks for that one coin. And when the shepherd finds the sheep, he, he brings it home on his shoulders and calls his friends and his neighbors to rejoice. And the, when the woman finds her coin, she again, she also brings her friends and neighbors home to rejoice. Now the stakes are higher with the coin than they are with the sheep. You, you think that a sheep is more valuable than a coin, and in one sense it is. But, but remember, it was one out of a hundred sheep. This is one out of ten coins. Seems to be one-tenth of her life saving. Both of these parables essentially tell the same story. They, they, they speak of how God goes to great lengths in His saving grace to save sinners. How Jesus Christ came into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. These two parables tell of how heaven celebrates, of how God celebrates at the salvation of a lost sinner. And with the repetition of those two parables that essentially tell the same story as I mentioned earlier, that, that it's, it's like an exclamation mark. This repetition is Jesus wanted to bring this point home. Well, now with this third parable, the, the so-called parable of the prodigal son, it's like a double exclamation mark as Jesus tells the story again. The stakes also get higher. We go from one out of a hundred sheep to one out of ten coins to one out of two sons. So now with this third parable in the trilogy, Jesus is getting more pointed. He adds another element. He adds a third character that reveals Another key point, a development, a twist that at first seems shocking. But when you consider what's really taking place here, it's far more common than you would imagine. Last time I spoke about three-year-old Jude Layton who disappeared into the woods from his father's resort near Kingston, Ontario this past March. We heard how the weather was cold and rainy as teams of over 50 OPP officers and over 50 volunteers scoured the area looking for little Jude. And as the days passed, hope faded that he'd be found alive. But on March 31st, by the grace of God, hope against hope, three days after he'd gone missing, little Jude was found alive and well. We, we spoke about, about the reunion that must have taken place at, at the return of Jude. The celebration. When their parents, when the parents found that his, the little boy was alive and well. Imagine the celebration at the, at the grandfather's resort that evening. Now, I don't know if Jude has any siblings, but for the sake of illustration, imagine that he does. Imagine that Jude has an older brother. We'll call him Jesse. No, Jesse's here, right? Well, when Jesse finds out that Jude has been found, he refuses to come to the party. 
His father goes out and, and tells him, he pleads with him to come in to, to celebrate with the family. But Jesse responds, I've always obeyed you. I've always listened when you told me not to wander off. But that son of yours always wanders off. He's irresponsible. He's always making trouble. He always gets the attention. You never throw me a party. It's not fair. He stomps his feet. His father replies, son, you've always been with me. You're my son. I love you. We thought Jude was dead, but he's been found alive. He's your brother. How can we not celebrate? It's the right thing to do. Now, of course, this is a parallel of the parable of the prodigal son. And when you put it in those terms, it seems ridiculous. I think this would never happen, but this sort of thing happens in our hearts all the time. The parable of the prodigal son is arguably the best known of all Jesus' parables. And people go to all great lengths of trying to allegorize, trying to, to apply every single detail. But, but this is really not the way to interpret a parable. Most of, of Jesus' parables teach one key point. This one teaches three. And the main points are centered around each of the three main characters. And that's, that's a really helpful way to, to consider the interpretation of a parable. You consider the main characters, the main elements, and you, you learn the application and the interpretation from those main characters or main elements. So again, in this case, three characters. Verses 11 to 20a, we see the younger brother's sin, repentance, and confession. Then we see in verses 20b to 24, the father's mercy, grace, and joy. And in verses 25 to 32, we see the, the, elder, bro- the elder brother, the elder son's anger, self-righteousness, and opportunity. So again, we see the efforts that, that God makes and the grace that God extends to save lost sinners. But this time, we also see God's grace contrasted with the judgment of the self-righteous. But also in this parable, the compassionate response of the father is, is contrasted with the angry response of the elder son. This highlights the second point of Luke 15. It serves as a direct direct rebuke of the Pharisees and scribes who grumbled against Jesus for eating with sinners. Heaven celebrates over the finding of lost sinners while the self-righteous exclude themselves from heaven. So this also highlights a third key point of Luke 15, which is really the point we've been seeing since all the way back in chapter 11, that the lowly are coming to Jesus while the religious leaders are rejecting him. That the lowly are coming to Jesus while the religious leaders are rejecting him. So first of all, then the younger son's sin and repentance and confession. Verses 11 to 28. As Jesus begins this third parable in the trilogy, he immediately introduces us to the three characters, which again provide for us the three main points of the parable. A man had two sons. And the two sons serve as a foil to highlight the character of the father. The action begins in verse 12 as the younger son approaches his father, asking for his share of the inheritance. 
This is the height of dishonor. Not only is he showing contempt for his father by approaching his father to, to, to ask for his inheritance, for the, the money that he feels he deserves, but in doing so, while his father is still alive, in that culture, he's, he's essentially saying that it's as though his father is dead. As though his father is already dead. Give me the money that I'm going to get from you when I die. You might die in the future, but I don't care. I want it now. His father is dead to him. He's shaming his father and he's severing the relationship. He's actually, in effect, rendering himself dead to his father. The father's most gracious. He grants his son's request. According to Deuteronomy 21.17, the elder son would receive two-thirds of the inheritance and the younger son one-third. The elder son, though, decides not to cash in and, and remains at home while the younger son takes the money and runs. He goes on a journey to a far country, leaving nothing behind. He relinquishes every claim on any of his father's property. This was, in his mind, a one-way trip. And going away to a far country implies that he's, he's gone to live amongst Gentiles, that he's left not just his family, but he's left Israel. He's left his spiritual heritage as well. For, for a Jew, leaving Israel, leaving the promised land, was tantamount to leaving God. And in this far country, he squanders his money in reckless living. He has hastily gathered all that he had, and now he's hastily wasted all he had. That's what the word prodigal means. It means being wastefully extravagant. Proverbs 13.11 teaches this principle. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. And Proverbs 21.20 is similar. Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but the foolish man devours it. If you spend a lot on what you don't need, you'll find yourself in want. You don't have to be an accountant to know that when your outgo exceeds your income, you'll eventually be without. So there the younger son is. He is far from home, far from his family, far from the people of God, and penniless. He has thrown his life away in the pursuit of pleasure. And I trust that you know that this was you and me. This was you and me in our flesh, that we also threw our lives away in the pursuit of pleasure. We were all prodigal sons and daughters. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, every one of us to his own way, Isaiah 53, 6. We made demands on God and spent his good gifts on reckless living. Now, of course, it might not have looked exactly the same for you as it did for this prodigal son in our parable. But consider this, that anything that is spent or consumed or enjoyed that is not expressly for the glory of God is wasteful, extravagant. And maybe you still live your life that way. Maybe you're still a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter. And now it goes from bad to worse. A famine hit. And as Leon Morris says, he, he ran out of money and he ran into a famine. And this wasn't just a famine. This was a severe famine. 
but it was also a localized famine. It was only in that region, in that country. But meanwhile, back in Israel, back at the homestead, things are fine. But as bad as it was, this severe famine and the situation were not bad enough to humble him and to make him rethink his action. You see this sort of thing all the time. A trial happens. A father loses his job. A family member gets sick. A soldier faces combat. And people pray. These so-called foxhole prayers in the middle of a trial. But for most of these people, even though they do pray, as soon as the trial is over, they go back to right where they were before, back to forgetting who God is. Same thing happened after 9-11. After 9-11, the churches were flooded for a few weeks. But it didn't last. This trial that the younger son faced was bad, but not bad enough to wake him up. We've just been through a year of significant trial because of COVID-19 and the resultant restrictions. But what is your response to these things? Are they really causing you to to press into Christ? Are they causing you to, to pray more? To be more earnest in your prayer? To be more intimate with God? More conscious of your reliance on Him for everything that you need? Unbeliever, what is it going to take for you? When are you going to wake up? The younger brother sinks lower. He gets a job feeding pigs. For a Jew, this was humiliating. You know, I might be thinking bacon. He's thinking unclean. Remember that under the ceremonial law, pigs were unclean animals. Leviticus 11.7. Normally a Jew would have nothing to do with swine. But this Jewish man has to stoop to feeding pigs. And to make matters even worse, the pigs ate better than him. He longs to eat the pods that they were fed with. Probably carob pods. And I don't know about you, but I would have to be pretty hungry to eat carob. To make matters even worse, nobody gave him anything. The pigs were treated better than him. Jesus is wanting to make very clear just how dire the son's circumstances had become. Young man, young woman, do you think that you will find happiness outside of the family circle, away from the love and protection of your parents? You want to be free. You will find yourself enslaved to the sin that once promised you pleasure. As someone who went pretty far down that road, let me tell you that the the pleasure that you are seeking is a lie. The freedom that you are seeking will lead to bondage. The pleasure you're seeking comes from the the world and the flesh and the devil who are hell-bent on destroying you. Countless are those who have sought freedom to cast off restraint to pursue sin and found themselves in bondage to a very cruel taskmaster. 
Sin is a cruel taskmaster. The unbeliever seeks happiness but will never truly find it. Isaiah 48.22 says, There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. The end of sin is physical and spiritual death, not happiness. The sinner is standing in a hole with a shovel, digging his or her own grave. This son has turned away from his family. He's in a pigsty with no money, no food, no family, and no friends. But with verse 17, we have the first rumbling that could reveal repentance. This, this could be the turning point. Finally, the younger son begins to wake up. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? He, he's coming to his senses. He's realizing that his father's day laborers have more than enough to eat while he's sitting there starving. Just think of the irony. Even his father's temps are better cared for than he, the son. How many people have no idea how serious their plight is and the choices that have gotten them there? Their state is obvious to everybody else, but they themselves are oblivious. But there, verse 17, it seems to me, maybe, maybe he's beginning to really change. Maybe this is really the beginnings of repentance. Notice that the choice of, of terms that he uses here. Notice that he refers to his father as his father. Three times in verses 17 and 18, the son refers to his father as his father. Something seems to have shifted in his heart. You must come to your senses before you have the sense to come to God. You must realize that you're on the wrong road before you can clearly see to take the next exit. Now, conviction is not the same thing as conversion, but there's no conversion without conviction. You need to have conviction of your sin before you can turn from your sin and be converted to Christ. But as many people have conviction, and never turn to Christ. Conviction is the first step towards repentance, but this is not repentance, not yet. There are a lot of people who don't like the consequences of their sin, and they, they want to change, they want to reform their lives. But not because they realize that they're sinning, but because they don't like the way their sin makes them feel. They don't like what their sin costs them. They've been playing with fire, and their, their toes get a little bit singed. Now I back away from sin for a few moments, but before long, they're straight back running at it again. They don't like the consequences, but they still love their sin. This is the worldly sorrow that produces death. But what's needed is godly grief, grief that produces repentance, 2 Corinthians 7.10. What's needed is to realize that your actions are sinful and that you deserve the wrath of God. That you sinned against others. That you sinned ultimately against God. What's needed is to, to turn away from your sin and to turn back to the others that you have turned away from and ultimately and especially to turn to God. In the case of this 
younger son. His hardship finally gives him a hard enough kick in the pants, a cold enough splash of water in the face to wake him out of his sinful stupor. Again, unbeliever, what is it going to take for you? We know that a trial on its own is not enough. We saw that a few minutes ago. Repentance requires the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And being born again is a work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus talks about that expressly in John chapter 3. He's talking to Nicodemus. So let's see what happens next. Let's see if the Holy Spirit is indeed at work in this younger son's heart. Verse 18, he says, I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Now this sounds good. He resolves to go to his father and confess. Notice here that he is recognizing his sin. He's not just trying to get out of the consequences of his sin. He's not just regretting what he's lost, but he's regretting what he's done. He knows that he's broken the fifth commandment. He knows that he's dishonored his father. But first and foremost, he recognizes that he's sinned against God. I've sinned against heaven and before you. Now this certainly looks like the godly sorrow that leads to repentance as opposed to the worldly sorrow that leads to death. He resolves to go to his father and say, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Yet he recognizes that he does not deserve to be treated well. He takes responsibility and he accepts the consequences of his action. There isn't even a hint of an excuse. There isn't even a, a hint of entitlement. It looks like repentance. But be careful. Because resolution and recognition aren't repentance either. Yes, they are part of the process of repentance. They're necessary steps in repentance. But it doesn't end there. If it stops at resolution and recognition, it's useless. I've heard this a thousand times. I've done this ten thousand times. Before coming to Christ, I wanted to change. I wanted to clean up my life. I said, oh, I'll stop doing this. I'll stop stealing. I'll break up with this girl. I'll sober up. Well, the road to hell is paved with good intention. People say that they will come to Jesus. I was just talking to my son a couple days ago. He said, I'll come to Jesus tomorrow. Tomorrow. But tomorrow's never promised. Tomorrow never comes for so many. But even Christians do this. They, they say, well, okay, I won't spend so much time watching TV. I'll stop going to those websites. I'll read my Bible. I'll pray. Again, good intentions. But you actually have to do it. If I'm in Seattle and I, I want to come home to Kelowna, but I get on a bus that's headed for Los Angeles, I'll never get to Kelowna. And if the person sitting next to me asked where we're headed and said, well, I'm headed for Kelowna, he says, well, dude, you're going the wrong way. Kelowna's that way. I'll tell him, I convince myself that it's okay. I'll, I'll get home. But I'm self-deceived. 
I need to physically get off the bus and get on a bus that's going in the other direction. I actually need to go home. If I want to go home, I actually have to go home. And that's exactly what the son does. Verse 28. He rose and came to his father. So then let's consider the father's mercy and grace and joy. Verses 20b to 24. The son arises and goes to his father. We don't have to wait very long to find out what happens next. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. These are some of the most beautiful words in Scripture as you consider what they're really saying. This is such a beautiful image. The father now becomes a central figure in the parable. The father takes the initiative. He sees his son way off in the distance. He doesn't wait for his son to come. He, he hikes up his robe and he takes off down the street up to meet his son. And you need to understand that in that culture, this sort of thing just didn't take place. Respectable Palestinian fathers did not run down the street, especially to, to meet a wayward son. But it just went out to him. He, he embraces him. It literally says that he threw himself on his neck and he kissed him. It's such a tender show of emotion. And again, this is not something that Middle Eastern fathers did. He doesn't care what people think. He loves his son. He's overjoyed to find his son, that his son is alive and well. Remember, they, don't, they don't have email back then. And even, if they, even if they did, the son, for most of it, at the time, he wouldn't even bother to write because he didn't care about his family. Before son says, the son says the word, the relationship has been immediately restored. Friends, this is repentance. This is reconciliation. This is what the gospel does. This is what God does. His wayward son has been welcomed home, not as a servant, but as a son. The Father's grace immediately rises to overcome the Son's shame and his guilt. The Father has mercy on the Son. Mercy is not giving us what we deserve. The Son deserved a stiff arm from his fall. The Son deserves the words, get back where you came from. You're no son of mine. That's what he deserves. Deserves to be cast out forever. But the son didn't just go home. The son came to his father. So consider again how the father's described here. He saw him. He had compassion on him. He ran to him. He embraced him. And he kissed him. What a glorious picture of our heavenly father's love for us. The father sees us. In fact, the father knew us before the foundation of the world. He has compassion on us. He embraces us. He kisses us. And he welcomes us home. Brothers and sisters, you are sons and daughters of God by the love of God and the grace and the mercy of God. Your heavenly Father has welcomed you home. Verse 21, the restored son confesses his sin. Exactly as he said he was going to do. 
This wasn't just a resolution. He's, he actually does it. But notice that he says that, he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer to be worthy, worthy to be called your son. But notice he doesn't even get a chance to ask for a job. It's like the father cuts him off. And he says, I don't want to hear any of that. You're my son. I'm just so glad to have you home. And he calls his servants and he says, he says, get the best robe and, and put it on him and, and get a ring and, and get shoes. Now the best robe implies his position. Similarly, so does the ring. This is probably a, a, a signet ring, which would have been, which would have borne the father's insignia, his seal. And the shoes imply that he's no longer a slave. But that's not all. He tells his servants to kill the fatted calf. He calls for a feast. 4 verse 24, he says, This my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Like we saw with the lost and found sheep and the lost and found coin, there's a great celebration. But this is no mere sheep and this is no mere coin. This is a found son. He was dead, but he's alive again. He's born again. The fatted calf is reserved for special celebrations, and there's no greater cause for celebration than this. Jesus is giving us a picture here of what it means that God is our Father in heaven who welcomes us into heaven. Maybe it makes me want to sing with, with John Newton. It makes, it makes heaven sing. It makes God sing. Glorious things of thee are spoken. Zion, city of our God. He whose word cannot be broken, formed thee for his own abode, on the rock of ages founded. What can shake thy sure repose? With salvation's walls surrounded, thou mayst smile at all thy foes. See the streams of living waters springing from eternal love. Well supplied thy sons and daughters, and all fear of want remove. Who can faint while such a river ever flows their thirst to assuage? Grace which, like the Lord the giver, never fails. From age to age. Sordid joys and sinful pleasures are replaced with, with solid joys and lasting treasure. And all of this comes to us from the hand of God, our Heavenly Father. The Father is welcoming home His lost but found Son, His dead but now alive Son, in the most joyful and the most extravagant way possible. This is love. This is mercy. This is grace. This is God. I'll sing again like Charles Wesley's hymn. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused him pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? For those who have experienced God's love and grace and mercy, you know what I'm talking about. Have you experienced God's love and mercy and grace? Have you put faith, your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you turned away from your sin? If not, why are you waiting? What's hindering you? Come to Jesus now. Come to Him now. Today is the day of salvation. But all of this, all this love and joy is contrasted with what we're about to see as the focus now shifts to the elder son. 
So now we see the older son's anger and self-righteousness and opportunity. Verse 25 to 32. The elder son comes in from the field and as he approaches the house, he hears music and dancing. He's been out there doing his job. He's been out there in the field working and he's, he's wondering, what's going on here? I didn't, I didn't know there was a party plan. To ask one of the servants. And the servant explains in verse 27, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But what's the elder brother's response? What would you expect him to do? Well, he expected him to be overjoyed. After all, this is his brother. Forever long his brother's been gone, seemingly probably for years. He had no idea whether he was alive or dead, but here he's alive and well. He's not overjoyed at all. Quite the opposite. He is angry. He's spitting chips. He refuses to go into the party. He refuses to go into his home. He does not go to his father's party in honor of his brother. Instead, he held his own party, a pity party. He stays outside, refusing to go in. Again, not just to the party, but into his home. And so now he is the one who is distancing himself from his family. When the father had welcomed his brother back into the family, this elder son should have done so as well. When the father extended mercy, the elder son wants justice. He wants this younger brother to get what he thinks he deserves. So jealousy and bitterness have been exposed in his heart. But again, notice that the father takes the initiative. Again, the father who already once had run out to, to meet his younger son to extend mercy now goes out to his elder son again to show mercy. And he treats him to come in. Yes, there's a time to work and there's a time to celebrate. This is clearly the latter. Now, as you hear this, hear this echo of what we heard back in verse 2. This man receives sinners, eats with them. Again, the Pharisee, who thought they deserved to be inside of the feast, find that they themselves are actually on the outside. The Pharisees and scribes should never have grumbled about the Lord Jesus receiving sinners. They grumbled all the way back in Luke chapter 5, 29 and 30, when, when we see that the, the tax collector Levi it comes to faith in Jesus and has a party and invites all the tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees grumbled back then, back at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And they're still grumbling. We saw this in chapter 14, 15 to 20. The master had extended an invitation to the feast and they'd said they'd come, but when the time came, they found every sort of excuse to stay away. We saw this in chapter 13, 22 to 30, that there were, there were these were those who would not enter by the narrow door. Unless they repent, they will be cast out. So this elder brother answers his father in verse 29. Look, these many years I have served you, and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friend. Notice he doesn't refer to his father respectfully as father. He says, look. Parents, how would you respond? If your son or daughter came to you and said, look. He saw himself as the model son. 
but he had no idea what it means to be a son. So he didn't understand what the father means, what it means for the father to be the father. He says, I have served you. Literally translated, I have slaved for you. Now remember, there's no sense of entitlement from the younger son. He didn't need anybody to convince him he was a sinner. But this elder brother is full of entitlement. He may have served dutifully for all these years, but now his heart has been exposed. It was not out of devotion. It was out of duty, mere duty. Unlike his brother, he's been obedient. He's been well-behaved. But a hired hand can be obedient and well-behaved. A pet dog can be obedient and well-behaved. But God calls us to so much more. God wants a relationship. God wants intimacy. God wants to be our Father and for us to recognize Him as Father. God wants us to go to Him, to, to hear from Him in His Word. And God wants to, to, us to pray to Him as our Father, to, to recognize that the, the great privilege that we have to have an intimate relationship and to understand that this relationship costs nothing less than the death of Jesus Christ. As He was punished in the place of sinners, as He was the only one who ever obeyed the Father's command. That's what it cost. And so we, we go to him celebrating what he's done for us, so celebrating this relationship that we have by, by God's grace and his grace alone. His elder brother was physically present in the father's household. But he wasn't really part of the family. The son who had rejected his family had now been restored. But now the son who had been with the family now needs to seek restoration. Again, he sounds like the self-righteous Pharisees and scribes. Again, he sees himself as a slave. And he sees critical of his father's apparent lack of generosity. He says, you didn't give me a party. You didn't give me what I deserve. I've never even gotten a kid, let alone veal, for a party with my respectable friend. But he continues in verse 30. And notice the words, this son of yours. Not only is he unwilling to call his brother brother, the prodigal didn't, the prodigal son didn't consider himself worthy to be called a son, but the elder brother doesn't consider him worthy to be called a brother. The father may have welcomed him, but he disowns him. But this implied blame on the father here too. He says, this son of yours. When this son of yours came, who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Now this is the first we hear about prostitutes. This was an assumption. Remember, this brother had been in a far off country. How, how could the elder have even known what he had done? Now it may have been a slanderous charge, but, but even if it was true, it was still slanderous. Because the Father had forgiven him. And friends, this is a picture of God's forgiveness. Whatever you've done, whatever you've done, for the one who's in Christ, God's verdict is right and righteous. Whatever you've done, if you're in Christ, your sins have been cast into the depths of the sea. 
Your sins have been separated from you as far as the east is from the west. Because if you are in Christ, your sins have been covered in the blood of Christ. As he bore the wrath that you deserved. It is the devil who brings up charges that have been paid for by Christ. Jesus, again, is clearly rebuking the Pharisees and scribes in this parable. But we miss the point if we fail to see how it applies to us. Kids, do you ever feel like your parents are being unfair? Your siblings are treated better than you. But they get the bigger share. They get the best presents. Look at all the kids over here. They get the better presents. They get the most attention. Well, you get the chores. You're ignored. You get in trouble. No, it's kids. I see it in my family all the time. But it's not just kids. We're all like the elder brother sometimes as well. We look at the blessings that, that in the lives of other Christians and, and we, we think, that's not fair. God is blessing them. Why isn't he blessing me like that? I deserve. We feel jealous. We feel envious. We feel entitled. We feel self-righteous. At least theoretically, you and I know what we deserve. You and I are like elder brothers when we don't welcome people into the church. People who are not like us. Or we think that are somehow, they're somehow beneath us. You and I are like the elder brother when we, we judge others by a standard, a standard other than that which is found in God's word. You and I are like the elder brother when we, when we whether in, in word or in our hearts, bring up the sins of others that have been paid for by Christ. You and I are like the elder brother when we fail to share the gospel with those that the Lord has providentially paid our path, put in our path because we're saying, like, I'm being stingy with the gospel. This person doesn't deserve God's grace. You're like the elder brother when you feel self-righteous and entitled. You're like the elder brother when you, you feel that you're not appreciated like you think you deserve. That people don't give you credit for your service. Again, all of us are sometimes like the elder brother. But again, the father extends mercy. Verse 31. Son, you're always with me and, and all that is mine is yours. He is, is gently responding to and gently correcting the false accusations of his son. Again, this is mercy. There's grace here for the elder brother as well. They're both sons. And the father's sticking with the original deal. He says, you still own everything I have. Everything I have left. You have everything. You don't realize the animals actually belong to you. Because you forgot what it means to be a son. You don't, you don't realize that you could have, at any time, you could have, you could have taken whatever animal you wanted and, and ate. It's yours. But you don't understand. Just because you haven't made the most of, the, of your privileges don't mean the, does not mean these privileges aren't yours. And he says it's fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. 
Again, we see a correction. He's my son, and he's your brother. It is fitting, is, is, is perhaps better translated, it is necessary. It's not just the right thing to do to celebrate. It's the only proper response. Doing anything else doesn't make sense. Again, he repeats, he was dead, but he's alive. He was lost, but is found. It's fitting to celebrate. This is another invitation for you to come inside, to be part of the family, to welcome your brother, to welcome my fatherhood. The pebble ends. Jesus doesn't actually tell us the older brother's response to this. This is an opportunity given to the Pharisees to and the scribes to repent. Before it was the prodigal son who was lost and is now found. Now it is the, the elder son who is the lost son, and he needs to be found. Again, it's open-ended. But the question is, is what's he going to do? Well, the question for you is, what are you going to do? Are you going to come near and to hear Jesus' words like the younger son? Are you going to be like the elder son who rejects the redemptive plans and purposes of God, who rejects them for others and rejects them for yourself? Are you going to accept those who God accepts or are you going to be rejected by God? The Bible is full of lost and found sinners. The church is full of lost and found sinners too. If you are not a lost and found sinner, you're still a lost sinner and you need to be found. In Matthew chapter 21, 28 to 31, Jesus speaks of, of two brothers who the father tells to go out and to work in the vineyard. And the first says he won't, but changes his mind and goes. And the second says he will, but changes his mind and doesn't. The first son is like the younger son in our story. The second son is like the elder son in our story. Which son are you? Which son are you? Let's pray together. Almighty God, as we consider this beautiful passage and the picture that it paints for us of your sovereign grace, of your love and your mercy, of the comfort and the call of the gospel, we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in every heart. Lord, causing those who have not yet come to Christ to turn away from their sin and to put their faith in you for the very first time. That they truly might be born again through the saving power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, for those of us who have wandered into self-righteousness and entitlement and envy and jealousy and, and behave at times like the older brother, we pray also for 
forgiveness, that we would return to our first love, that we would remember your grace, that we have been saved by grace alone, and that's the only way of salvation. Help us then to extend grace and mercy and love to others who are saved in the same way. Lord, to the self-righteous who have never truly come to faith. Lord, we pray also for the redeeming work of your Holy Spirit to grant repentance and faith unto life. Lord, we pray that you help us all to see you, to see who you are in your glorious attributes and to respond to you with worship and with love and with a zeal for intimacy with you for who you are and all that you've done for us in Christ Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.